Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Kayla Cooper and I am a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I am joined by Dr. April Hartman. Dr. Hartman is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and serves as the Division Chief of General Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Hartman. Thanks. It's great to be here today. On today's episode, we will be discussing a very important topic in pediatrics, autism. We will review the definition, clinical symptoms, and prevalence of autism spectrum disorder, which we will also refer to as ASD. We will review the diagnostic criteria of ASD, discuss screening and surveillance tools. We will also review the management of some of the potential co-occurring conditions. And finally, we will discuss intervention options and how the clinician can partner with families. So let's get started. In 1911, a German psychiatrist named Eugene Bluler was the first to coin the name autism. He described it as a condition associated with schizophrenia. Of course, how we diagnose and characterize autism has greatly evolved. You're absolutely right, Kayla. Autism spectrum disorder is actually a range of conditions, and it's characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech, and problems with nonverbal communication. It affects all races, all cultures, and socioeconomic status has, is not protective. It, it affects everybody. We've seen that the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, reports that by age 8, around 1 in 54 children are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and that boys are about four times more likely to have the diagnosis than girls. Dr. Harmon, it seems that the prevalence of children with autism has increased over time. Have you seen that in your practice? Well, it's true that there appears to be an increase in the prevalence of autism, but this could be for a variety of reasons. You know, as physicians, perhaps we're just better educated about the signs and symptoms of autism. We've um, started universal screening for autism, which we'll talk a, a little bit more about later in this podcast. But that's also become one of the routine things that we do at Well Checks. And this has helped us diagnose a lot of kids with autism much earlier. It could also be due to the increase in media attention in recent years on autism. But, you know, perhaps autism has always been around. We just haven't been diagnosing it. While I was growing up, there was always that kid in class that was a little bit different. He would repeat a phrase over and over. And we kind of just learned to ignore him or just tolerate those unusual behaviors. But looking back, a lot of those children would probably be diagnosed with autism today. So how exactly do we diagnose a child with ASD? One thing you have to keep in mind is that autism is a spectrum disorder. Symptoms also must be applied differently based on the expected developmental behavior of different age groups. I think the best way to illustrate this is by using a patient case. Kayla, why don't you get us started? Absolutely. So our first case is a three-year-old boy who presents to the clinic for some behavioral and speech concerns. Um, His mother reports that he started using single words at age 18 months, but still doesn't use two words together or say a full sentence at a time. He also seems uninterested in playing with other children. He likes to line his toys up in rows and will sit for hours opening and shutting the doors of his toy cars. He's otherwise growing well and has no other chronic conditions except for some occasional constipation. The mother has heard about autism in the news a lot and wants to know if this could explain her son's behavior. Most physicians recognize when something seems to be a little off about a child. 
In the exam room, you might notice that there's a three-year-old who doesn't respond when his mom asks him something, or maybe he does respond, but we can't understand what he's saying. We might also notice that he has a strange fixation on something in the room, like he might focus on the wheels on the stool and just keep spinning them around and around. These types of observations should prompt the provider to ask more questions about the child's ability to communicate and what he's able to do. So it definitely seems that the behavior that a pediatrician observes is important to notice, but also it would be important to determine how the parents perceive their child's current developmental progress. Exactly. You should ask about how the child interacts with the family and other people. Maybe he's just shy with strangers and he talks full sentences at home. Um, But as a clinician, we must rely on the family to tell us what's different about their child and express these concerns because our time with them is limited and the symptoms that we see or don't see may not be what is happening at home. We should also ask if other family members have brought up concerns to the parents. Sometimes the parents may not even realize that something is off about their child. So going along on that vein, what are some of the criteria that are needed for a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder? Autism spectrum disorder is mostly a behavioral diagnosis. This means there's no blood tests, no brain scan, and no other objective measure for diagnosing autism. The current criteria are based on the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-5, and that gives you a list of ASD symptoms. More specifically, though, it does include deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, deficits in nonverbal communicative behavior, and deficits in developing and maintaining relationships. So when you say deficits of social communication and interaction, I'm thinking of more so symptoms we generally associate with autism, such as poor eye contact or blunted facial expressions or even little interest in getting attention from others and problems coping with change or transitions. Is this correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And in addition to those things, we also need to show they meet the criteria regarding restricted or repetitive behaviors or interests. These individuals tend to want everything to say the same. This means that they have very rigid routines and can have a very strong response if those routines are disrupted. They can also be hyper or hypo-reactive to sensory input. For example, a seemingly innocuous stimuli like the seam on a sock might unreasonably bother a child with autism. Kayla, can you think of any specific behaviors that might demonstrate the repetitive element of this diagnosis? I'm thinking of maybe hand or finger flapping. I've seen some kids that have twisting or rocking movements. Um, They may also repeat something they've heard someone else say repeatedly. Correct. Can you think of any examples of a child with fixated interests? That would be something like a lack of imaginative play. So, for example, if a child has a toy car, but instead of driving it around and pretending to go somewhere, he just spins the wheels. That's a great example. Some kids may even fixate on certain foods or the way they eat foods. What I mean is there may be only one or two things that they like to eat at a given time, or they may not want the foods on their plate to touch each other. They want them all to be very separate. Parents have probably learned to adapt to avoid meltdowns or tantrums, as they like to call them, but changes in these routines may be very difficult for the child to deal with, and it often creates major behavior problems with the families. So Kayla, tell me about the physical exam for a child of autism. What do you think you would find? 
So I think for most kids, I would assume that the physical exam would be generally unremarkable. However, I'm sure there are some subtle findings that we should include in the exam. So checking for toe walking and signs of self-interest behaviors, I'm sure some examples. We often hear about headbanging. This is a very common form of self-injurious behavior among those with autism. Other forms include biting, hair pulling, scratching, or even just picking at the skin. There may be visible signs on the surface of the body on physical exam indicating some self-injurious behavior. So we always have to make sure that we're looking at their skin to pick up on any of these signs. Toe walking is something that we see a lot, and this is when a child walks on the ball of his or her feet with no contact between the heels and the ground. It's common for some kids who are just learning to walk. However, most children outgrow this toe walking habit around two years old. Beyond that age, it could indicate that there's some type of underlying medical condition, such as uh, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, or even a spinal cord abnormality. It's not that toe walking is always linked to autism. It's just that children with autism may potentially toe walk as part of a sensory-related behavior. So Dr. Hartman, when is it important to begin identifying signs and symptoms of ASD? We know that the symptoms we've been talking about can cause a significant impairment in the daily functioning for the child and the family. Because these symptoms impact the family, they're usually noticed early in development. However, we've talked about autism being a spectrum of disorders, so they may not be recognized as a problem right away. So a child's autism status may progress over time, is that what you're saying? The challenge is distinguishing a shy or maybe introverted child versus one that meets the criteria for ASD. This is one of the reasons we always order an audiology evaluation for a child who we're concerned may have autism. We don't know if they're not talking because they can't hear or they're not talking because they may be at risk for autism. That definitely makes sense. And we don't want to diagnose someone with autism when their problem is that they actually can't hear. We also can't forget to rule out other genetic, medical, or behavior diagnosis. While up to 25% of children with autism may have some language regression, the presence of developmental regression should include an evaluation of other metabolic or genetic causes. I know that early intervention can make a significant impact on disease processing. So what can I do as a clinical provider to ensure that I identify which of my patients are at risk for ASD? Universal screening is the key. As I mentioned earlier, parents view their children in different ways. A parent who is on their fourth child may not worry about the lack of speech in their three-year-old because their other siblings may have had a similar developmental trajectory and they ended up being fine. While a new mom may wonder why their two-year-old isn't talking in complete sentences, even though we would only expect two-word phrases for a child this age. That's a great point. So how often should we formally screen children for developmental concerns? The American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, recommends that children should have universal screening at every well check, but more detailed developmental screening at ages 9, 18, and 30 months is what is recommended. Specific screening for autism spectrum disorder is recommended at the 18- and 24-month well child visits. These age groups of children are when most developmental delays could be potentially corrected or prevented if caught early. However, a screening test should be considered if there's any developmental concern at any visit. The key is not to wait and to screen every child. 
And would you mind kind of describing for us the difference between developmental delays and developmental disabilities? That's a great question. Developmental delay is when a child does not achieve an expected milestone compared to other children of the same age, while a developmental disability is a chronic condition associated with long-term developmental delays. So a child who's born premature may have developmental delays initially, but they may eventually catch up and meet all their milestones. A child with autism spectrum disorder may always have a developmental disability and never catch up those developmental delays. And so kind of going off of that point, what are some of the formal screening tests that are available? There's a lot of different developmental screens available for clinicians. What a clinician chooses to utilize depends on the cost, the length of time it takes to complete the screen, the willingness and ability of the patient population to answer the questions, how you administer the screen, and who's responsible for scoring the screen. In my practice, I use the Ages and Stages Questionnaire, or the ASQ3, and the Parents Evaluation of Developmental Status, or PEDS. These are two of the ones approved by most of the insurance plans in the state where I practice. Are there any developmental screening tests also used to screen for autism? For specific testing on autism, most pediatricians will utilize the MCHAT-R, which stands for the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers Revised. One of the benefits of using the MCHAT-R is that it's free. It comes in a lot of different languages, and it's available online. It can also be incorporated into most electronic medical records, which makes it a lot easier for practices to use. Just remember that some developmental screening tests can be costly and may require a license to use, or it may have copyright protections that omit it from being incorporated into the electronic medical record or just make it cost prohibitive to use in an everyday practice. You definitely bring up a great point about cost. And so do practices get reimbursed for performing screening tests? And wouldn't this help offset some of the cost? Traditionally, most well child services are bundled. So when they come in for a well check, you get one fee for doing everything associated with that well check. However, now a lot of states have started to reimburse clinicians for developmental screening separately. It's recognized that this takes extra time to administer and to score and then to explain the results to the families. The AAP is working to get all states to reimburse practices for these services since it's so important to catch these kind of delays early. And what about families who may react negatively to concerns that their child may have a developmental disorder such as autism? You bring up a good point. One way to avoid negative reactions is to allow the parent to express their concerns. Most of the time, they already know or they feel that something is wrong, so perhaps they do want help, but others may not want their child to be labeled or marginalized. Most of the time, I start by asking parents what they like best about their child. It's amazing how talking about the good things changes the mood of everyone in the room, including the child. It also builds up a good positive rapport with the family, and it helps when you get ready to ask about specific concerns they might have. And then I give them time to talk it out. At first, they may be hesitant to accept the diagnosis, but usually we can at least agree that the behavior or developmental concerns may show improvement if we can initiate some interventions or therapies. So once a pediatrician actually identifies a child with autism, what's the next step? We have to realize that it takes a team of people to care for a child with autism. The medical team not only includes physicians and nurses, but also therapists like speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, 
and maybe even a social worker. The school system is also essential because they are a huge part of that child's life. And most importantly, we have to engage the family in helping to care for the child. This includes other caregivers such as grandparents, aunts, uncles, babysitters. The impact on the family that is responsible for caring for a child with ASD can never be measured. You have a large cost for medical care, educational support, and social resources. And then there's the emotional cost for the family. So you're mentioning emotional cost. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what that means? Raising a child with autism spectrum disorder can be a daunting experience for parents and families. Like many other families who have children with developmental disorders or chronic conditions, the risk of mental and physical health problems of caregivers are increased compared to parents of typically developing children. And so it's a strain on the family and those that help them. And let's also not forget about the financial strain and time pressures on the families and going to all these appointments and everything they have to do for these children. Yeah, it definitely seems that this type of stress could diminish any of the positive effects of any of the interventions that a child may engage in. I agree. As pediatricians, our job is to be familiar with what local resources are available, help them with their navigation of the healthcare system, and make sure that they get in with the specialty providers that they need when they need it. The biggest thing we can do is support the family as a medical home. Providers need to understand how early intervention works in the state they practice in, because this varies from state to state, but we have to be knowledgeable about it if we're going to help kids with ASD. What types of interventions should be included? Interventions have to be a collaborative effort that integrates medical, behavior, and rehab services. Our goal should be to help the child achieve success at the highest level that individual child can attain. Treatment strategies, they'll vary by age, and some kids are able to do more than others. They all have their strengths and weaknesses. For example, intervention for a toddler with a diagnosis of ASD may include behavior and developmental approaches, as well as the involvement of a specialized preschool program. For older kids, intervention is more likely to occur in the school setting. School system and teachers now have a better understanding of autism um, and how to work with kids who have this diagnosis more so than they have in the past. And special education has really developed into something that is good for these children. Are there any other services that providers can use to advocate for these patients? We have to be a voice in the community. We have to take part in legislative efforts and with the associations we're part of to just really try to advocate to support special education teachers, to try to advocate for smaller classrooms, encourage families to join a local support group, because it really helps to hear what other families are doing and how they are navigating the school system and who they talk to. And this will help increase the potential innovative ideas and how to care for these children. This has definitely been an excellent conversation that we've had thus far. And I think we should go ahead and move on to another clinical case to help us understand the management of autism in an older child. So we have a seven-year-old boy who is about to enter the second grade and is preparing for the new school year. There were no previous social issues for him in his early childhood years. However, as groups in school have increased in size, it has become harder for him to socialize with others. And additionally, he has become fixated on certain books and characters and refuses to participate in discussions that do not concern these topics. 
His mother has been called several times by his school regarding frequent tantrums by the child. Is this child just being difficult or are there other things that we need to consider in this patient? As pediatrician, behavioral problems are common, and I tend to deal exclusively with kids with behavioral problems, so this is something that I come in contact with a lot. For this child that you just presented, is this um, undiagnosed autism or another behavioral issue? How do you differentiate the two, or could this child have both autism and a behavioral disorder? We know that kids with ASD may have additional developmental or behavioral concerns, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, or mood disorders. However, these behavioral disorders are not a part of the autism spectrum. They're just what we call comorbid conditions. Dr. Harmon, how do you address behavioral concerns with parents on top of all the other needs that must be addressed for a patient with autism? It can definitely be challenging. Behavior problems for any child in general is not a one-visit fix. It takes time, and parents sometimes come to me because the school is starting to put pressure on them, or they have a long list of concerns, and there's a lot going on, and they just don't know what to do. One way I've found um, helpful is to have parents write down all their concerns. I usually like to use three-by-five cards and have them write one problem on each card. I then work with the parent on organizing each card in order of priority. Then we use the opposite side of the card to list the actions we can take to help with that specific concern. This includes writing down things that parents can do, writing down things that can happen at the school, and things that I, as their pediatrician and their medical home, things that I can do. If a medication is needed, such as for ADHD or the hyperactivity, if this is being considered for the behavior, I would still go through the steps of evaluating the child for ADHD. We can't just assume that's what it is because they're hyperactive. And it seems that we've addressed a lot of the behavioral concerns, but what are other problems that can be associated with ASD? One thing that we see all the time is sleep disorders. And then we see a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. Some will have problems with vomiting or rumination. Kids with ASD, when they get older, often have weight problems. And as we mentioned earlier, this can be because they get fixated on certain foods. So this can lead to potential for poor weight gain or malnutrition if they have aversions or weight gain if there's only certain things they want to eat that may not be healthy things. So children with autism may have difficulties coping with change. How can pediatricians prepare these children and their families for an office visit? It's important to try to keep things as much the same as you can. So we always recommend they see their same primary care provider every time they come in if possible. And if the parents can establish a routine for the visits, that helps also. Like, for instance, maybe they always go for ice cream after a visit to the doctor or just something they can associate with that doctor visit that's positive. When performing the physical exam, the provider just needs to be really patient and flexible and creative in how they try to do the exam because some kids with autism are really hypersensitive to touch, especially when it comes to things like looking in their ears with the otoscope. That can be a really traumatic thing. 
But little adaptations such as trying to look in the ear without touching the canal, um, those kind of things are helpful. Vaccines and other potential procedures should be done in a separate room so that when the patient is in the exam room, they feel safe and they know that they go somewhere else for that thing that's going to hurt and they're not crying throughout the visit. The practice may also consider talking to the parents over the phone as, or as a telehealth visit to complete all the screening and preliminary tests and answer questions prior to the in-person visit so that it decreases the amount of time that they have to be in the office face-to-face. I really like those tips, and it definitely can help patients with autism feel safe during their doctor's visits. What concerns should be addressed for those transitioning from pediatric to adult medical care? Most pediatricians will see kids till they're 19 or even 21, sometimes even older than that. However, since these individuals have difficulty coping with change, exploring options earlier before the transition has to happen would be helpful. As soon as they are able, families need to encourage the child to be as independent as possible. And, you know, this is going to be a gradual process of appropriate increasing levels of responsibility, but it's important that they take these steps as the child is able to do them. All right, we're just going to switch gears for a moment and talking a little bit more on the genetic side as that becomes a large part of medical care and treatment. There are many organizations who are trying to understand the role of genetics in autism. So is there a genetic basis for autism that we know of today? That's a good question. I mean, there's certainly been many advances in research and understanding the neurobiology and genetics that are associated with autism. Studies that show like a 10% risk for a couple's future child to have autism if one sibling is affected, but up to 35% risk if two siblings have autism. However, you know, the diagnosis continues to be based on identifying and reporting behaviorally defined clinical symptoms. Who knows what the future holds? Now I'm optimistic that we'll not only improve our ability to diagnose and treat, but maybe one day we will find a way to prevent ASD or any of the autism spectrum disorders. That's extremely encouraging to hear. What about racial stratification of autism? The CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Group conducted a longitudinal research study on the racial and ethnic differences in children identified with autism. From the research, they have found that white children are about 1.1 times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than black children, and about 1.2 times more likely to be diagnosed than Hispanic children. Do you have any thoughts about these discrepancies in diagnosing patterns? For children of color, unfortunately, there is data that demonstrates that autism spectrum disorders are often diagnosed several years after the onset of symptoms or is misdiagnosis other disorders. And it seems that it's also well known that many minority populations have more difficulty accessing health care and educational services than many non-minority groups. Geographic and insurance issues definitely create even more limitations for individuals within these communities. That's right. And you have to ask yourself, why does this happen? In an article published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2020, researchers found that African-American children with autism experience racial disparities in timing of diagnosis and access to quality intervention. These children experience twice the rate of comorbid intellectual disability and higher rates of misdiagnosis of autism compared with non-Hispanic white children. But there's also cultural differences that delay some families to seek care compared to other families. 
And unfortunately, systemic racism and implicit biases are present in the medical community. Providers may assume that this poor behavior in a child of color is due to them being undisciplined or that they come from a poor home environment with inattentive parents. This then leads to the potential underdiagnosis of autism in black or brown children. And there may also be concerns of mistrust between providers and families. For example, if I don't look like my patients, they may not respond to me the same way as a family of the same race or background. As a medical educator, I hope to encourage and recruit a more diverse and multilingual workforce that's trained to diagnose autism to decrease these disparities and get them diagnosed sooner so that they have the same opportunities and potentials as other children. There's more work to be done, um, but at least the discussion has started and I think we're making progress. Thank you so much, Dr. Hartman, for taking the time to speak to us about this important topic. So let's wrap up our episode today by reviewing the key points that we discussed. First, autism spectrum disorder is primarily deficits in social communication and interaction. They may have repetitive behaviors, have challenges with social skills, or have problems with speech and nonverbal communication. The physical exam is generally unremarkable. However, a clinician may observe signs of self-stimulating behavior, such as hand flapping. There may be visible signs on the surface of the body indicating self-injurious behaviors. Be sure to monitor the growth curve as patients might be underweight or overweight due to food-related sensory behavior. Other genetic, medical, or behavioral diagnosis should also be ruled out. The AAP recommends that children should have a universal screening at every well check. Specific screening for autism spectrum disorder is recommended for the 18 and 24 month well child visits. Parents may be upset or hesitant to accept that their child has autism, but use clear, compassionate language when discussing the diagnosis, talk about treatment options, and prognosis with the families. Interventions should be a collaborative effort that integrates medical, behavioral, rehabilitative, and educational services. Children with ASD may have additional developmental or behavioral disorders that should be addressed and treated. We strongly encourage providers to recognize cultural and racial disparities to avoid delays in diagnosing autism in all children. Ideally, a more diverse and multilingual medical workforce that is trained to recognize and treat autism would help to decrease these types of disparities. Thanks, Dr. Hartman. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Susan Goldberg, who contributed to today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios and we look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the mcg pediatric podcast